Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, and today my guest is Yvonne Caputo. Yvonne has been a teacher. She taught in the Erie, Pennsylvania public schools for 18 years. She has also been the vice president of human resources at a retirement community, a corporate trainer, and consultant, and a psychotherapist. She has a master's degree in education and clinical psychology. Her book, Flying with Dad, is a story about her relationship with her father through his telling of World War II stories. Her second book, Dying with Dad, was released at the end of May 2022. She has always been a storyteller. She has used stories to widen the eyes of students and to soften the pain of clients. It's her stories that result in rave reviews as a presenter and speaker. Yvonne lives in the great state of Pennsylvania with her best friend, who is also her husband. Together, they have three children and three grandchildren. And Yvonne, it sounds like you have a full life um, and a full plate. And I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today on the, on the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm glad to do it. So, let's just get right into it. Um, tell us, we're going to, and by the way, for our listeners, we're going to be talking about all things with end-of-life care um, today, and Yvonne's going to take us through that, that, uh, that chapter. So, first of all, Yvonne, please tell us about the experience or experiences that have shaped your interest in end-of-life issues or concerns. Well, there are two primarily the first one is that when I was working in the retirement community, I sat on the ethics board and we were presented a case. And the case was like this. There was a woman on the nursing unit that was totally in, uncommunicative because of dementia. And she was in late stages of dementia. She developed a sore on her foot and the doctor suggested uh, Whirlpool baths and antibiotics. Her daughter, who was her healthcare agent, um, said no, she didn't want those treatments because it wouldn't improve her mother's quality of life. And quality of life was something that was stipulated on her mother's advance directive. The problem was the advance directive was written in another state, and quality of life is not recognized in the state of Pennsylvania. So in discussing this, we ended up saying we need to contact our attorney. Our attorney then said, we need to take this to court. The court provided then two surrogates, a surrogate who would allow for the Whirlpool baths and for the antibiotics. If those didn't work, then the daughter would be the second surrogate, which would she could then say stop all care. 
when this happened, I thought about my father. I knew he had a will, but I didn't know if he had any kind of legal document that would tell me what he wanted at the end of his life. So I got on the phone and I explained to it. I explained it to dad. He lived on the other side of the state. And I said to him, is this something that you're willing to pursue? And he said, sure. So I said, I will make all the arrangements. I'll find an attorney. I'll schedule uh, a meeting and I'll come back. Now, dad lived on the other side of the state. So it was a six and a half hour journey. So that's the first one. The second one uh, had to do with a client. And this client had a congenital illness that wasn't discovered until her senior year in college. Um, the illness limited her in tons and tons of ways. At one point, she was on dialysis, but then she got a kidney transplant. And she would come to me and talk about the depression and the anxiety that went along with her illness. Now, that was normal. Her depression and anxiety were normal. So what she was looking for is she was looking for advice about how to make that depression and anxiety more of something that she could live with. To, make, you know, to find an ease with it or, or a way to decrease it. She and I worked together on and off for years. And it wasn't that she came every week, but there would be a voicemail. And, you know, she would say, I want to come in for a tune-up. And she would come in and we would talk and she would feel a little better. But it started to nag me. Was I really doing her any good? Was the advice that I was giving to her, was my counsel really helping her in a way that she needed to be helped? Well, I was going to a conference, and the conference was on trauma and longstanding trauma. So at the break, I decided to approach the pre presenter, the professor, and tell him about this case. I explained it to him pretty much the way I just explained it to you. And I said, what do I do? He said, there's only one thing you need to do. You just need to ask her one question. And I said, what's that? And he said, the question is, how do you want to live until you die? How do you want to live until you die? I was gobsmacked. Here was a question that I never thought to ask her. And to be honest, I went back to my table and the rest of the conference kind of just flew by because I couldn't stop thinking about that question. A month or two passed, I don't remember. She called and she came in. And I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm thinking about the question, and I'm trying to focus on her, and I'm really leery of asking it, but I finally decided, okay, Yvonne, you got to go for it. So I said to her, I'm going to ask you a question that's hard for me to ask, 
but I'm going to go for it anyway. And she said, go for it. I said, how do you want to live until you die? Dave, she broke up. She started laughing so hard, the tears were rolling down her cheeks. And she said to me, Yvonne, that's the best thing you ever asked me. And she came time after time after that, and that's where we always focused. What was she living with right now? What were the constraints that she was under? So with all of that, how did she want to live until she died? So those are the two experiences that really brought end-of-life concerns to my table. Wow. Um, two very different yet very similar cases because really what, it, what I heard, it's just all about quality of life. And it's like, how do you choose to live the rest of your life until you die. In fact, that's a good, probably going to be a good title for this podcast, you know, in terms of that, that line. I think it's, it's, it's profound in its simplicity, but yet in its depth. Um, and I'm a firm believer uh, in qual that quality of life should, should come before sanctity of life. I'm a firm, firm believer of that, that I think, um, quality, you know, for me, if my quality of life becomes compromised, I'm not sure you know, due to terminal illness or dementia, I really don't want to go on in a state where uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, that's how I'm going to be remembered. I want to be remembered as I, as I was, not how, you know, in the aftermath of, of terminal illness. And I think everyone should have that right to decide that. I, I think in every state of the union, everybody should have that right to decide that. And, you know, quality of life should be something that is, is, is a, is an option in addition to other health care options in all 50 states of the union. I'm a firm believer of that. Um, Agreed. The thing that I really want your audience to know is it has to be in writing and legalized. Yep. yep. Um, if you don't have that piece of paper, if you don't have that document, then med the medical profession is required to try and keep you alive. Yep. And that was what I learned by that case. Now, in addition to that, I became aware of a document called The Five Wishes. Yes. And, and this was something that came across my desk when I was working in the retirement community. And it was there after Dad and I had, din, had done rather the advanced directive with the attorney. And I looked at that document and I went, oh my God, this is so much richer than what we've already done with dad. I just couldn't let it go. I wanted to know the kinds of questions that were being asked in the five wishes because there was so much more to it. I wanted to know how comfortable dad wanted to be. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what quality of life meant to him. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know how he wanted to be remembered. I wanted to know what he wanted us kids to know. I wanted to know about the funeral. I wanted to know burial or cremated, all of these little intricate things mm -hmm. that really clarify end of life were in the five wishes. So with trepidation, 
I drove across the state with the five wishes by my side on the front seat. And it was my passenger. And I kept looking at it and thinking, oh, my gosh, here, here we go again. Now, you need to know my father could be gruff. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of times that I would hear from him. What the hell do you mean? <laughs> or, what the hell do you want? And so I was not really prepared to hear that from him. But I was prepared to know that I needed to know what was in the five document or five wishes. Yep. I went into the hospital. It smelled just like supper had been served or supper was over. That was a good sign. Um, I walked in dad's room and he was smiling and that was a good sign. And he had finished his dinner and he was glad to see me. And I said, there's something I need to go over with you. It's another document. Are you willing? And Dave, he swung his legs over the bed and he patted the seat beside him so that I could go sit down. It was still warm from his body warmth. We pulled the hospital tray table up to us and we went through the five wishes, question by question by question. And it was like we were in this sacred conversation. Um, he said, if I don't have 75% of quality of life, then let me go. I don't want to be in pain. And I've done enough research to know that if I am pain-free, it will hasten my death. But at that point, who the hell cares? <laughs> um, when I asked him, did he want to uh, have his organs harv harvested? He said, hell no. He said, they can't be any good. They've got to be all worn out. Who in the world would want them? It was stuff like that. When it came to his funeral, he said, I was raised Roman Catholic. He said, I want a high mass. I want your husband to sing. My husband, Kirk, has a glorious tenor voice. He said, I want the Lord's Prayer, Amazing Grace, and the Ave Maria. And by the way, Yvonne, you will sing too. Because he knew I'd been taking voice lessons. Mm -hmm. So we went through all that stuff. And then I said, well, how do you want to be remembered? He said, I want to be remembered for my work with the Red Cross. He pulled the rug right out from underneath my feet. I said, well, what about World War II? His response is, well, that too. Like it was like a non-event. Um, so I learned so much from my dad, so much more by doing the five wishes. And in the end, it was the five wishes that really pushed me to give my dad the death he really wanted. So he would say to me, Dave, frequently, and he would say to his other son and daughter, I want to be carried feet first out of my home. And he had been in the hospital. We had driven back to see him. We had driven home. He called me on the phone. He was livid. I was holding the phone out because I could hear him, he was yelling. Mm -hmm. And it was that they had released him from the hospital and he was still in incredible pain. And he said to me, why did you tell them that they could do that? I said, dad, 
I told them that they could send you home when you were ready. Doesn't sound like you're ready. He did something Dave he'd never done before. He said, Yvonne, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I said, it's okay, Dad, you were just venting. I'll be home tomorrow. And he said, before that, he said, Yvonne, I'm scared. Can you come home? And that's when I said, I'll be home tomorrow. I was home two and a half hours. We heard a thud. The next door neighbors were over. Dad was face down between the bed and the dresser. Since I'm not a nurse, we called the EMTs. Mm -hmm. They came. There was just one in the beginning. He told me what to do when we pulled Dad out from beside the bed to the bed the end of the bed and rolled him over so that they could start working. And I'm saying to them, stop, please. He doesn't want to be worked on. And they said, we have to do that. So I picked up the phone and I called the transitional care unit. And I said, there's a do not resuscitate on my dad's chart. Get it to the emergency room. They're bringing him in. Luckily for me, the ER doctor called the EMTs and said, you can stop working on him. So I laid down beside him, put my arm across his chest, talked in his ear, because I knew there was something there that still heard. And I told him that I loved him. I told him he was going where he wanted to go to be with my mother, that I would miss him like crazy. And then I did the thing that was the glue in our family, and that was the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. And I continued that, and he was gone. And so the EMTs put him on the gurney, and yes, indeed, they took him out feet first (laughs) out of his own home. And if you can imagine northwestern Pennsylvania, it's January, The snow's coming down an inch an hour, and they have the gurney parked at the end of the ambulance, and the ambulance doors are open, and the light's shining on my dad's face, and there's this soft, sweet smile, and I knew that we had done it, and I threw my fist in the air and said, yes! (laughs) The EMTs looked at me like I was the one that needed to be in the ambulance. And I said to them, you've given my father his wish. You Mm -hmm. have taken him out of his house feet first. And I say, when I talk about this, I don't grieve the loss of my father in the way I grieve the loss of so many of the others in my life. Because he trusted me with how he wanted to go. And I was Mm -hmm. able. It was like he gave me a gift. And I returned the gift to him. Yes, and as I was listening, I'm I'm familiar with the Five Wishes document. And that's something I'm going to put the link to that so that our listeners can can explore what's in that document. But one of the things is that that sounded like it opened up a really powerful and very spiritual discussion 
about what he wanted at end of life. And his end of life chapter became an extension of his spiritual journey in other chapters of his life. And I think uh, I think it's, it was beautiful the way that it, it unfolded and that he died the way he wanted to die. I, you know, I tell my students at Utica University, we don't have any control of how we come into this world, but we, we can exercise some control of how we go out if we value quality of life and we wish to exercise the option to die with dignity. We can, we can exert that type of, of control over, over how we go out. And I think the fact that, and I think the five wishes discussion, that took away all of the fear out of discussing a topic that for many in society is very difficult to talk about. So I think just outlining what, how you did that with your dad, um, I think is just a great model for um, end of life discussions in general in terms of how they should be done. Well, I want your audience to know that I miss my dad. You know, yesterday something happened and the tears just started to come. It isn't that I don't miss him. But paired with that, the divine paradox, beside the missing is this sacred, glorious feeling about how he allowed me to participate mm -hmm. in his spiritual journey. And it was my spiritual journey as well. When we did the five wishes... When we finished the document, I took dad's hand and we said the Our Father out loud together. That's the way we ended doing that. And then I went down the hall to find witnesses to watch him sign the document. So it is very much a spiritual kind of thing. And also for your audience, my granddaughter was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of 17. She's fine. She's oh, in remission. She went through treatment for three and a half years. When she was in children's hospital, she had to do the five wishes. So when people say to me, when should you do it? Well, there's, there's absolutely no time that mm -hmm. it isn't perfect. Because when I said to you, I don't grieve the loss of others, I lost a brother in 1978. He was 26 years old. We had no idea what he wanted. It was so quick. It was so sudden. It was the blast that shook the family. We had no idea. My mother was in the hospital, and the very last conversation I had with her, she was screaming at me to get her out of there. Now, mom was in the beginning of beginning stages of dementia, and she knew it. And after that phone call, she passed away in the hospital. I didn't know what she wanted, had no idea what she wanted, because at that time, the idea of an advanced directive or the five wishes was just not something that I knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really, you would encourage our listeners to have those end-of-life discussions or do the five wishes as soon as possible. Make that as part of a discussion, as part of our our beginning life chapter or middle life chapter, as you know, rather than wait till the end of life to do that. Absolutely. Um, when I actually it was proposed to me to write dying with dad. So I had 
known several people, many actually, who had read Flying with Dad. Mm -hmm. So I picked up the phone, called them, and asked them if they'd be willing to be interviewed. And I was talking to a gentleman who was 87, and he had no idea. He had absolutely no idea that this might be something that he needed to do. Well, he did it. And his daughter got back to me, and on his birthday, he said to his children, I want to do a Zoom call, and I want to go over the five wishes with you. That's my birthday present. And it got to the place where he said, I want to be cremated. And his, cho and he said, his children asked him, where do you, what do you want us to do with your ashes? Oh, I don't care. Throw them over a bridge. Make it easy. You know, what, Matt, what difference does it make? And they said, well, Dad, wouldn't you really like your ashes out on the farm? He grew up in a one-room farmhouse on mm -hmm. the plains of Canada. And he said, you'd want to do that? And they said, yeah, of course we would. And so he went and changed that piece in the five wishes. Um, another one in terms of discussion was a young woman who said, Yvonne, when I read that part of your book, it never occurred to me to be open and allow those conversations with my parents. She said, when they bring it up, I would always poo-poo it or push it away or saying, we don't need to talk about that. She said, but, but you've changed my mind. And the third most profound one, Dave, was a woman who for 10 years had been acutely ill mm -hmm. because of a medical mistake. And she lived with pain and she lived with low energy. And she and I talked about that and we talked about the five wishes and she told me she was going to do them. I received word that she had chosen hospice and her husband uh, had set it up for those of us who knew her to have a conversation with her. In the seven minutes that she and I talked, I didn't say but two words. She just kept saying over and over and over again how grateful she was for the five wishes, how much it had meant to her to be able to mm -hmm. sit with her family and talk, how her family were ready to let her go because of the condition that she was in. Her quality of life was so poor. So what's better than that? What's better than those three stories? Yeah, and it, it beats the alternative over being hospitalized, having intrusive medical procedures done your last week of life, which improves doesn't improve your quality of life and causes more pain for caregivers. I like those options of having those end-of-life discussions, finding out how people want to orchestrate their end-of-life chapter, and, um, and going from there. I think that is that's the key in terms of giving empowering individuals how do you want to live the remaining days of your life how do you see your end of life chapter progressing it's about empowerment as opposed to to doing treatment to somebody who, who may not want that treatment done mm -hmm. and my five wishes are done mm -hmm. my children have copies 
My doctor has a copy. Um, our local hospital is providing us a way to have a plastic sleeve that you put your five wishes in and you put it in the freezer. Mm-hmm. And there is a symbol that you put on your door so that EMTs coming in know where to get that document. All right. So if I'm going to write about it, I need to do it for my kids. And my kids have been wonderful and open in talking about it. Mm-hmm. And we use a little gallows humor to lighten it a little along the way. But um, that's the other piece of it is to make sure that, you know, that the document is done. Now, I can say, because I'm a uh, psychotherapist, there are toxic families. Mm-hmm. And people, your li- some of your listeners may have needed to pull themselves away from a toxic family. Mm-hmm. Find somebody that you trust enough who will speak for you. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't need to be a family member who is your healthcare agent. Mm-hmm. It just can be that very dear friend who will absolutely follow your wishes. Yep, and as a former addictions counselor and, and clinical supervisor, I ran into my share of individuals who came from very toxic family environments. So, and that that's good advice. It does that your healthcare proxy or your agent does not necessarily have to be a family member. It could be somebody that you trust to make sure that your end of life wishes are executed as you as you've dictated them to be. In a chapter of another book I read recently, the author said in terms of talking to people, think in terms of a stop sign. A red light are the people in your life that you can't talk to. A yellow light is that there's a possibility. A green light is this is a person that I can share my soul with. And so to think in those terms, red light, yellow light, green light, who Mm -hmm. is within the realm of that stop signal who is the person that you can trust yeah very sound and very 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 sound and very sage suggestions so um getting into your you talked a little bit about your book dying about the book dying with dad how can dying with dad help individuals and their families be better prepared to deal with the challenges at end of life what can this book give them that is going to be valuable information. My wish and hope is that given the way I wrote the book, they can see how I grew into being able to talk about death and dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that I could have done 20 years ago. I wasn't there. I grew up in a family where you didn't talk emotions. You just, you didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, because they didn't know what to do with them. I'm going to be fair to my parents. It was not a language that my parents learned. And so it just didn't happen. So I hope that by seeing my journey of being more comfortable with talking about emotions, of going through uh, in my family, two died by suicide, one died by murder, 
uh, my brother died in a car accident. Okay. There were just multiple, multiple deaths. Mm -hmm. And in each one of them, I came away with a piece of learning. You know, and, and I would suggest to your audience, too, to read the book Bittersweet by Susan Cain. Okay. It's very, it's very, very well written. And it's, it really explains um, a concept that I use with my clients. And it's this. Sound mental health is the ability to contain the paradox. You can and you can't. You will and you won't. It is and it isn't. There are awful things that happen on one side of the paradox called life. But there are also beautiful things that happen in the paradox of life. And being able to contain that really is a requisite for being mentally healthy. We're all going to face tough times. We're all going to have difficult moments. But hopefully getting through them with some sense and sensibility, we will learn and grow. Mm -hmm. It's like I said earlier, would I have my dad back? You betcha. Would I want one more pot roast dinner with him? You betcha. Are there 50 million questions that I want to ask him about his war experience that I didn't think to ask when we were doing that book? You betcha. However, on the other side of that paradox is the fact that, like I said earlier, because I had done those documents with him, because I had participated in honoring his wishes, there is a joy that I feel along with the sorrow. That's the divine paradox. Doing something hard to achieve something beautiful. And that's a beautiful way to put that too, because I think beauty comes out of out of work. It comes out of it comes out of hard work, and it comes out of um, you know tragedy as well too. That you know that uh, we are inevitably going to endure if we live long enough, and um, you know, and and how we transcend that, and how we choose to 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 view that moving forward is going to be the key, I think, to reengaging in life. So so thank you for that. Um, you've probably already gotten into this, but there are, are there any additional takeaways from your life journey that you believe can help our listeners deal with their own life challenges? I know you've addressed a couple of them, I think, in, in a conversation, but is there anything in addition that you would like to, to, to share? A, a couple of things. I'd like to reiterate, um, there's an M. Scott Peck quote at the beginning of his book, the road less traveled. Mm -hmm. And he says at the end of that quote, uh, when we no longer kind of chase it, life is difficult, it will no longer matter. You know, mm -hmm. life is difficult. Once we accept the fact that life is difficult, it will no longer matter. Yep. Uh, for me, as trite as it sounds, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope when I close my eyes for the final time that I can truly say that. You know, when life has handed me something, I've made something sweet out of it. So I think that that's really important. Um, 
The other thing that I teach around stress is the idea of a stop sign. So if you'll play along with me for a little bit. Dave, what do you do when you're in your car and you get to a stop sign? Well, I, you know, I put my foot on the brake as I see the stop sign approaching and, and so that I don't go through it. Okay, and what's the reason you do that? Well, I mean, it, so I, to avoid getting into an accident that's going to hurt myself, and but more so that may hurt somebody else and those okay. that I love. All right. So in my mind, negative emotions are simply internal stop signs. So what we need to do as people, if we're feeling something, it's either in our gut or our heart has seized or our shoulders are tight, is to stop and say, what am I feeling? Mm -hmm. And to name the word. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. Whatever the case may be. So that's the stop sign, you know. And before you proceed through, then you ask yourself the question, given that I'm feeling this, how do I want to deal with this feeling mm -hmm. according to my values? Mm -hmm. So if I'm angry, what am I angry about? Mm -hmm. What do I need to do about that anger? Do I need to sit with it for a little bit? Because if I do something right now, it's not going to be good. Mm -hmm. If I'm frustrated, an example that I'll give you, when I do trainings, I get anxious. All right, so that anxiety has me make a list of all the things I need to take with me. It has me going over my PowerPoint to make sure that I'm kind of lined up with what I want to say. Mm -hmm. It makes me leave the house a half an hour before I'm supposed mm -hmm. to get someplace so that I know that I have plenty of time. Yep. It, it makes me plug the location of the presentation in my GPS. I mean, so the anx anxiety, and this is something else that I say, our negative emotions are our friends. Mm -hmm. They're there to help us navigate the world in a safe way. But if we push them down, if we ignore them, if we, if we repress them, then what we're essentially doing is we're going right straight through that stop sign. And then yeah. we wonder why we're in a crash. And, you know, repressing those negative emotions enables us to deny a part of our own existence because our own existence isn't just about happiness. It's about being able to experience all types of emotions and learn from them, work through them, and be present with them. And uh, I think that's important whether you're working through grief or whether you're navigating life in general, is to, to look at everything that comes along, both the yin and the yang, as opportunities for learning and growth. Mm -hmm. And who of us learns when it's good times? You know, our deepest learning comes from when we're struggling with something and yep. we overcome it. Yep. I agree. I agree. Boy, those are wonderful takeaways. I could see, I, could, I, would, I would love being a student in one of your classes. I think you just are a marvelous teacher. So, um, and with that, to wrap up today, how can people get in touch with you? How can they purchase your books? How can they find, how can they find it in general? What's the best way to contact and purchase your books? Okay. Um, 
the name of my publisher is Ingenium Books, I-N-G-E-N-I-U-M Books. Okay. And they have a special section of their website that's dedicated to me. Uh, I suggest a lot, if you have a favorite independent bookstore, go into that independent bookstore and ask them to order the book for you. Mm -hmm. um, you can buy it uh, at any online retailer. Uh, my email address is fairly simple. It's Yvonne author for the number at gmail.com Yvonne author for at gmail.com um, I'm also on LinkedIn you can mm -hmm. find me on LinkedIn okay and I'll make sure I put all that information in the in the program notes when the, the episode is released so um, Yvonne with that it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the teaching journeys podcast um, I'd love to have you back sometime um, for another discussion. Okay, I'd love to do it. Well, thank you. And with that, everybody, that is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.